Morning, Upper Room. As Lori mentioned, over the last few weeks, we have been exploring the uh, reality of work in our lives, and I've called it an inescapable reality in the sense that uh, it's something that we do for more time than we do anything else. Over 100,000 hours in your life, you will spend working. And so with that in mind, we have to, and, and when I say work, just to remind you, uh, it doesn't matter whether it's work that you um, get paid for or not, whether it's something you volunteer for, whether you're uh, looking for work right now, whether you're uh, in a job you love and uh, you, you, you uh, live to work or you're in a job that you don't really love and you're just sort of uh, working to live, it doesn't matter that every one of us is engaged in something and has been given tasks and talents and abilities and finds ourselves with things that we need to do. And because it dominates our world more than anything else, as Christians or as people who have gathered together, even if you say, well, I'm not a Christian, well, chances are that you've come here. If you're here, you're trying to know something about God, or perhaps you're trying to pursue some kind of relationship with God. And so we want to know, well, what does God have to say about our work? And the premise that I put before you is that it's not something we were meant to do just to get by. It's not a necessary evil, but actually something we were meant to find joy in. And that was the premise or the promise that I put before you, not something I can deliver on, but I believe God and his word can as we discover what does it mean for us to find joy in the work that God has given us to do. Now, in my house, there are sounds that are made when we're working on something and it's not going the way we hoped. And I have to laugh now because I hear my children go, oh, and they're another part of the house. Oh, come on. And that's exactly what I say. When I'm doing something, I'm working some project around the house, like, oh, come on. And then I was with my dad last week. We were watching football, and he's like, oh, come on. You know, so this is like three generations where that's what we say in our house when we're trying to do something, and it's not working out. Now, I don't know if you take for a moment and think about what is it that you, what sound do you make when you're trying to do something, you're working, and it doesn't work out? Now, and I don't want swearing, but like just sounds. Okay, can you call to mind? What is it that you, for some of you, there's just this grunt. Some of you are like, you know, this kind of low thing. Others of you just glare. Uh, Others of you say something like, you're kidding me or whatever. So whatever that is, let's just say it together out loud, okay? I'm going to say my, come on, you got to be kidding. That's that's what I say. Whatever it is, just say it out loud. Let's have our collective groan out right now. You're doing something and it doesn't work on the count of three. One, two, three. Ah, come on. Yeah, see, we all have something. Comes from deep inside you. We're all well practiced at it too. I want to put words on that for you, just for for the sake of our time together this morning, and maybe words that will be helpful for you as you're going forward trying to understand this aspect of frustration in your workplace. Somebody said once that the gap between what we expect things to be and the way they really are is where frustration and anger live. That every bit of frustration and anger we have in our lives is because of the gap of where we expect things to be and what they really are. I want to use different terms to describe that, that there are beautiful things in your life that you are pursuing, that you have an image of beauty. You may not use that word, but it's like in terms of what you're pursuing in your work and what you hope work to be, beauty, perfection, what you want it to be, what you thought it was going to be, what it uh, was uh, cracked up to be for you. And the way it really is, is oftentimes broken. So we are pursuing something that's beautiful and we find brokenness. And the gap between those two things is where the come on comes out. We find that in big and small ways. That every one of us experiences this desire, this motivation to achieve something or realize something or fulfill something or pursuing something. 
we have some image of what beautiful looks like, and it, it's different for each and every one of us. Maybe because of an expectation you had of a job or what you thought you'd be doing in life or what you hope to be doing or the thing that gives you a deep amount of fulfillment, the thing that fits with your gifts and talents, the thing that you'd say, oh, I've been made to do this. And then in that pursuit, invariably we find brokenness. In a couple of ways, either because we can't get to what we want to get to. We can't achieve that beauty. We can't see it or we can't glimpse it or we can't get a hold of it. And so we run into uh, brokenness and that frustration comes out. We think, why can't I get where I'm trying to get? Why can't I realize this thing that seems to be in front of me? Some of, some of you may be able, to be able to articulate that very specifically. Others of you may just have this sense of what you're, where you're trying to be and you can't get there and the gap is this frustration where you are pursuing beauty and what you find is brokenness. In other cases, in other situations in our life, it's a brokenness that comes when we achieve what we had wanted to achieve, but it delivers less than what we had hoped it would. We've gotten to wherever it was that we were trying to get to. We have found ourselves perhaps in a sweet, sweet job, and yet there's something that's fading about it or frustrating or still we long for more, and there's a brokenness attached to even when we achieve something beautiful, even when it is attained, it is less than what we hoped it would be. There's that frustration, that gap. Now, how, how do we deal with that as people? And this is just a universal reality, right? Like whether, whether you're feeling in the middle of that right now or you've been that place or you know people going through that. What I've just described is not unique to any of us who are, uh, call ourselves Christians. It's, it's just a universal human experience as it relates to the work that we are trying to engage and pursue. And it leaves us in one of two places. Either we are people of sort of naive optimism that think, well, around the next corner or the next job or the next turn or the next promotion, if I can only get this, it's still gonna be there. I'm gonna get there. And, and yet, if that happens, in, maybe, maybe you've experienced this, these sort of small uh, crashes as we plummet to earth, <laughs> as reality, you know, as we hit the pavement over and over again, as we keep hoping what it's gonna be and we get there and it's not or we can't, and so we're continually frustrated. Or perhaps, maybe you're like this or maybe you're, you've got people in your work that are like this are just saying, it's cynicism. It doesn't exist. Whatever you're chasing is just the way it is, man. Just suck it up because that's just life. And so we have this sort of naive optimism that keeps us crashing back to earth every time we're trying to or think we've got beauty in our, in our grasp and then it eludes us and we find brokenness instead and we frustratedly sort of crash to earth or we just say, well, that's just brokenness, just the way it is. The scriptures again and again, you know, Lori talked about God being a refuge for us. One of the ways that they are a refuge for us is that they, you know, in a sense, God brings us in and says, let me explain to you your life. <laughs> let me explain to you why you are experiencing the what you're experiencing. Let me explain to you a different way of living than just sort of naive optimism that has these periodic crashes to earth or cynicism that just says, just give up. That's just the way it is. The scriptures actually tell us, and we've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks, the first three chapters of the scriptures, they're like, as I said this to you before, like the first three acts of a play that in a sense set up all of the rest of the story. And in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible, we find what? Beauty, right? God, out of the overflow of his beauty, creates this beautiful world, puts Adam and Eve in it, you know, and God finds everything that he makes beautiful, but he makes human beings specially in his image. They look at each other and think they're beautiful. <laughs> and he puts them in this creation and says, go work, go create, go fill this place, go do work. And it was going to be beautiful and enjoyable too. And so we find the first two pages of scripture tell us why we have this longing for beautiful things. 
It's because that's the way the world was made. That's what we were made within our hearts. Not just things that we can behold with our eyes, but this deep sense of being immersed in something amazing. And not just relationships, not just kicking back in the Garden of Eden, but working. So that work was meant to be something beautiful. So whatever it is that is in your heart is pursuing. It comes from a very deep place, the very part of who you are, created to find beauty in the work of your hands and what you send your mind and your heart and your talents to do. And in chapter 3, we find brokenness. It didn't wipe out the beauty. It just meant that everything that was being pursued now for to, to find beauty would, be, uh, would encounter brokenness. That within everything beautiful, they would, we would find brokenness. And we've seen this, we see this in nature. There are beautiful things about nature, and yet nature whips up these terrible storms and natural disasters. There's brokenness within all that is beautiful. Within each of us, there is the potential for such beauty and perfection, and yet, if we're honest with ourselves, right, every one of us has this experience of brokenness that we find. And the scriptures tell us it's because of sin. And what I said to you was, instead of sin being this sort of dowdy, frustrating word, it is a heavy thing, but it's a heavy thing because it explains what is wrong with the world. It's actually, in that sense, a hopeful word because it begins to point us to the fact that there is something other than just sort of naive optimism or cynicism, that sin has infected everything. And that's why we have this, Genesis 1 and 2 tell us why we have this constant longing for beauty. And Genesis 3 tells us why we're constantly encountering brokenness within it. And I gotta read for you the passage again that specifically talked about how we would experience this brokenness in the area of our work. It's Genesis 3, 17 to 19. And then I'm going to read a passage there for you in Romans as well, where the Apostle Paul gives us a little bit more flesh on the idea. This is what happens. Sin comes into the world and everything begins to fragment. And God says specifically to Adam with regard to your work, to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. So he, he didn't listen to God ultimately. Cursed is the ground because of you. He, and he was a gardener. So this is a cursed on work. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And the Apostle Paul describes it this way. For the creation was subject to frustration. And he says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning. And so there's description of creation itself, but let's consider work and ourselves as a part of that, there, that we are subject to frustration. Adam, you're a gardener. You're going to continue to garden, but instead of gardening being this thing that um, plants and fruit and whatever you need to live grows naturally out of it, you will be competing with thorns and thistles. And thorns and thistles are things that grow up with the other things that you need to grow. They're the things you don't want to grow, you know, like you've experienced this all in your garden or whatever. Stuff, you know, like the things I'm trying to make grow aren't growing. I don't do a lot of gardening, but I'm just saying, like the few times that I had. The things I'm not trying to make grow, those things just seem to be growing everywhere. And that's what's happening is that, and, and when weeds and thorns and thistles grow up, they're competing for the nutrients in the soil. They're competing for sun. They get all entangled with the beautiful things. So it's not that beauty was eliminated from work, but God said, Adam, every time you're going to try to do this, you're going to have to compete with other things that are getting entangled within your work. And therefore, Paul says, creation is, it's a sign that creation is subject to frustration. <laughs> and that's why for many of us, or many people you know, even if you love your job, there are experiences of frustration as you're trying to work this place and get it to grow. 
whether you're trying to get kids to grow, or whether you're trying to teach kids to grow, or whether you're working in an office where you're either producing products or you're offering a service or you're an entrepreneur or you're trying to help other people achieve their goals. There is frustration within it. We were meant, we're pursuing beauty in that. We have the vision of what we want or we hope or we see it or we taste it. And yet continually we're running up against the thorns and thistles that are coming out of the ground. And the Apostle Paul says this is because all of creation in his sense groaning like that is we experience brokenness in our pursuit of what's beautiful. The, uh, one of the uh, books in the Bible that it, you should read, but not too often, because it's a bit depressing, is the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a book written by King Solomon. And Solomon, we know, was one of the, or think, the wisest man in the world. And so he had many experiences, a very bright guy, and he wrote the book of Proverbs, has a lot of wisdom, but he also wrote, think, a good part of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is a bit of a more for some of you that are more philosophical and maybe on the kind of the glasses half empty kind of book, you'll like this book. Um, you should read it. I'm going to read from, uh, he has a little, um, you know, he writes actually a lot about work and so it's an interesting book to read and there actually is hope in it, which we're going to find out this morning. Oh, I know my Bible, I thought I did. Okay, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. It's part of the wisdom literature in the middle of your Bible. We're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I know, you're already reading. Is it up on the screen? Okay. Ecclesiastes 2, 17 to 23. Now, listen. So before I read this. So he has set himself out to apply his mind and knowledge. So this is one of the most talented and one of the most successful people. And so he experienced tons of success in his work. It said under Solomon, the whole kingdom grew. The kingdom of Israel was at its zenith. And he had wealth and success and everything. And he said, after doing all that and also looking at people who don't try hard, who don't use their abilities, he called them the fool or the sluggard, people who are lazy and don't work hard. This is my conclusion. After working hard myself, achieving a ton of success, and then seeing other people who are not working hard and not achieving success, here's my take on it. Ecclesiastes 2. So I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? Like what if a moron comes in after and takes over what I'm doing? Yet he's going to have control over the, all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom and knowledge and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. So he's bumming us out here with this reality of saying, even if I do everything right, someone else is going to come along and take over and screw it up. Or perhaps I'm working and trying to do all these great things and someone is right beside me who's a fool, messing this up for me. He's saying, this is broken. I'm experiencing brokenness in my work. And he said, you know what? So whether you work hard or don't work hard, what is even the point? He's expressing frustration at having even someone who has achieved success, finding it to be unfulfilling because of what happens next or the legacy he hoped he's created, what if someone comes along and blows it away? Or what if while I'm trying to do it, someone is coming along beside me who's a fool? And so maybe you've experienced that at success, or maybe you're the fool who's having a hard time looking after what God has given to you. There is frustration in it, and he says, what's the point anyway? Now listen, when we come to terms with this, 
okay, the, the beauty that we want to pursue and the brokenness that we find, we are susceptible in that gap to grumbling. Grumbling is a temptation constantly for those, every one of us, who are pursuing beautiful things but find them to be broken and are experiencing frustration. Grumbling is the temptation in the gap between the beautiful and the broken, between what we want it to be and what it is. Whether we cannot achieve it or we have achieved it and it has begun to fade, the temptation for every one of us is to grumble about anything. We can grumble about our bosses, about why they aren't doing what they're doing and haven't they read this great leadership book and we go to all these courses and they don't seem to do anything about it. We grumble about our companies, about the philosophy, about where they spend their money or why they choose to do this or why don't they pay more attention or how come they can't see what we can see. We grumble about our coworkers, why they're not doing meaningful work or we're having to pick up after them. Perhaps we grumble about ourselves, you know, where we're frustrated with it. Why, why did I do all this in school and now I'm not doing this or I should have gone to school or why did I waste all that money? How come I'm not where I'm supposed to be? Why can't I, you know, get this thing right? We begin to grumble, we're discontent with what is happening around us, with the people around us. We're discontent maybe with our situation. Or maybe when we've even achieved success, we grumble at the fact that we can't seem to keep going. We can't seem to grow more or whatever, maybe like Solomon, whatever we've achieved and worked for, other people are frittering or blowing away. And why is this happening? The gap between the beautiful and the broken is grumbling. We have a temptation to want to complain about what isn't as we're trying to pursue what we want it to be. And here's the, the particular problem with grumbling. Grumbling's actually called a sin. It's listed in amongst of other things that we would, you know, like typical things that we'd expect to be sin, like murder and adultery. Oftentimes you'll find grumbling is in it as well. And we just, I don't know about you, I just read over it. But every one of us has this tendency. No one's immune. doesn't matter whether you're a positive person, glass half full glass. All of us have this tendency in various ways and various times when our buttons are pushed and when we find that gap between what we want to be and what is, the beautiful we're pursuing and the brokenness that we encounter instead, we are tempted to grumble. And here's what. Grumbling kills. You know, when God calls things a sin, he is not only sort of saying, well, it's not even so much about, oh, you break my law and you shouldn't do bad things. Sin is everything that corrupts and corrodes what was meant to be beautiful in our lives. And so grumbling kills, what does it kill? It kills relationships and it kills our motivation. When we grumble in our workplaces, I want you to think about, right, whether, whether you, if you have children, you have a permanent job, right? No matter what else you do for a living, if you have children, you're raising them. That's one of your jobs. You may be doing that full-time at home or you may be doing that in, while you're doing another job full-time. All of our jobs involve relationships. The people we work with, our customers, our boss, shareholders, sales teams, work colleagues, big company, small company, our children. And when we grumble, it kills our relationships. Because when you are grumbling against your boss, are you more inclined to want to serve him or her or not? When you are grumbling against someone, you begin to get angry with them, right? Grumbling leads to anger towards the people that we're frustrated with. And we're frustrated with a situation, often we're looking for someone, some head to roll. 
because we cannot accept the way things are. And so sometimes our employers or our companies, those nameless, faceless companies that we work for, are easy pickings for us to say to grumble. But when we grumble, it kills those relationships because we're angry with the people. If you're upset with your children, you're not appreciating for them for what they are. You want other children. You wish they would act differently. You get angry towards them. When you're angry towards them, you, you, it's, killing, it's hurting that relationship. When you're grumbling about your coworkers or the people you work with, what's happening in that relationship? Is that getting more whole and healthy and your teamwork with them is working better? No, it's killing that relationship. Grumbling directly kills the relationships that we're involved in. It becomes much harder to do the work when we're grumbling against people that we're trying to work with or work for. We're less and less interested in their well-being. Grumbling indirectly kills relationships though too, right? Because who wants to hang around someone who's complaining all the time? Anybody like that? No, none of us want to hang around people like that. Grumbling indirectly kills relationships. You know why? Because if you're grumbling all the time about your relationship or whatever's going on, even if you're complaining about your boss to your friend, how much are you thinking about your friend's situation? You're not. You're thinking about your situation. And if they complain about their work, it's just an opportunity for you to say, oh yeah, me too. My life's worse. The more we grumble, it actually kills us from being able to have healthy relationships with other people because we're not actually thinking about other people, what their situation, what all we're obsessed about is what's going on with us. So grumbling not only kills and hurts the relationships of the people that we're grumbling towards, it actually begins to infect every relationship we have because we become a person whose attitude is always focused on what isn't happening to what? Me. Me, so when I go into a relationship, can I really serve another person? Am I really thinking about what they're going through? Am I thinking about their mentality as they walked in? Am I thinking about sometimes even, you know, when you get, you're dealing with someone in a service situation, you think, why are they so grumpy on the phone or across the desk or whatever? You're not thinking this person's going through something that's made their day really difficult and they're just barely getting by. What are you thinking about? Oh, I'm in such a hurry and why does this cost so much anyways? And you're mad, you're grumbling. It kills relationships directly and indirectly. That's why it's a sin. It corrodes what was meant to be beautiful. But it also kills our motivation, right? I said this already, if you're grumbling towards your employer, how motivated are you to serve that employer? How motivated are you to go the extra mile in your job when you're angry at your employer or your boss or your team, right? Oftentimes we say this, well, that's, that's it, fine. I'm just doing the bare minimum. You're not gonna go the extra mile. You're not gonna be motivated to keep going. If you're frustrated with your children and grumbling about where they are, are you motivated to be a better father or mother? Are you motivated to actually want to serve them more and care for them? No, no, you're just mad at what they're not doing or how they're ungrateful. That's not gonna make you actually wanna do your job more. And so grumbling not only kills relationships, it kills our motivation in work. It begins to work against us and actually the more we grumble, it begins to work in this vicious cycle downward where what we are upset about begins to cave in and it affects our work and it affects we see our work. It interprets everything that we see in our workplace, right? We interpret everyone's actions. If we're upset with somebody, we're gonna interpret every action they make or every new initiative the company gives or any new movement as filling into this picture of grumbling and discontentment that we have. And it begins to just work in this cycle downward, destroying our relationships, destroying our motivation. Now you might say, okay, all right, all right, all right, all right get it. Guilty. I shouldn't do that. I know I should be more grateful. 
But that's an oversimplified view of it, right? To say, I know, we should try to think of the positive things, try to be more grateful. When we grumble as Christians, it betrays the fact that there are two things that we say we believe that we don't really believe when we grumble. First of all is this. When you read Genesis 3 and God is saying to Adam, look, when you work, there's going to be thorns and thistles. When we grumble, it kind of betrays the fact that we don't believe that. We're expecting perfection. This may seem obvious to you, but the frustration that we have with the people around us in our workplace is what? Because we expect them to be perfect. We never say that out loud because it sounds ridiculous, but that's exactly what we want them to be. Why won't our boss do this? Why doesn't our company do this? Why doesn't my son or daughter do this? We're expecting perfection from them. We're not actually calling to mind the fact that, hey, work is full of thorns and thistles. The frustration we have is because we go in thinking, this, I'm going to pursue this beautiful thing and I can get it. And, and our culture feeds into this because we live in a culture where what? We have put above all other things what? The pursuit of happiness. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is everyone's right, is everyone's goal. And you can achieve it. Just put your mind to it. You can meet your dreams. Whatever's in you to do, you should do it, and you can, and just keep pursuing it, and you'll get there. The American dream, Canadian dream, whatever. And there's even branches of Christianity that have bought into this, try to put Bible verses behind it. God doesn't want you to be poor. God doesn't want you to be suffering. God doesn't want you to be, you just need more faith. And so we have this Christian American, Christian Canadian dream of what we think the beautiful is and how we can achieve it. And continually we find it's not, it's frustrating. We find brokenness within ourselves and brokenness around us. And when we complain, it betrays the fact that we have forgotten the curse. We have forgotten that our work is under the curse. And as we till that ground, expecting beautiful things to come up and seeing glimpses of them, and getting a taste of them and wanting more, we forget thorns and thistles are coming with them. And so we get upset with the people around us because we forget, oh, my boss isn't perfect. My company is broken. So are my colleagues. So am I. So are the people I lead. So are the customers I serve. So are my children that I'm trying to raise. They are broken too. They are all dealing with thorns and thistles in their lives. And even when you do everything right, you ever had that experience? Where you did everything you needed to do in your workplace and it still blew up. You're like, come on, how could this happen? Because thorns and thistles. Now listen, this is what I have found in my life. This is actually not a demotivating thing at all. It actually brings me what I desperately need. The antidote for grumbling, contentment. When I realize that life is full of thorns and thistles, I start to realize, you know what? I'm amazed that I've been able to experience any beauty in this life. What I have is a beautiful thing. The talents God has given me, the opportunities he's given me, the little bit of fruit that I've been able to see here or there, the fact that I have a job, or if even I'm still looking for one, I work in a country where there's services that can help me find one, or I can find connections. The kind of poverty we face in this country is different than other parts of the world. That there are opportunities, that we have a relatively stable workforce, that we have, generally speaking, companies that are not allowed to abuse their employees, and we use terms like sweatshop to refer to our work, but that's false because there are such things as sweatshops, and we don't work in any of them. And as I begin to realize that, 
that I live in a broken world, it makes me content with what I have. I start to go, oh, oh yeah. I start to realize God hasn't actually sent me into this place to fix this, and my goal is not to get rid of thorns and thistles. I can't do that. But I'm working amongst them. And every day as my feet hit the floor or every time I cross the threshold into my office or my workspace or my classroom or my kitchen or whatever it is, I remember I'm going in among the thorns. I'm going in among thistles. I should expect this. It makes me more at peace. It makes me realize that's okay. This is going to happen. And I'm more content with whatever beauty I have been able to experience. And it makes me more at peace. And it cures a grumbling spirit. A grumbling spirit's constantly focusing on what isn't as, a res- as I realize that you know, all of this is infected with sin. It makes me content with what I already have. And saying, God, whatever else comes out of this, <laughs> you know, I'm blessed. But the other side of it is, because we may think, oh, well, that's just gonna lead us to complacency. Are you just saying just be happy and don't pursue other things? The other thing that we have that when we grumble is, is betrayed, but you know, our Christian beliefs realize, I don't actually believe this, is that even though the beautiful is broken, it is being made new. Yes, I am content and peaceful with what is, but I know that what is is not what will be. Hasn't happened yet. But this longing for beauty that I have is not some vain, naive positivity. It is actually tied to a real experience of beauty that God is preparing for us. And here's what um, Paul says in the rest of that passage in Romans. I deliberately left out some of the verses for you so we could read it together here. Romans 8, verse 20. Look at this. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope, listen, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Just stop for a second there. The frustration we feel is a temporary reality as God has determined to liberate this world. That the children of God, you and I, will get to experience things as they were meant to be, that deepest longing we have to find fulfillment and fruit and beauty in our work is not a vain hope. It is something we wait for that God has determined to do. And as Christians, we call this to mind as if I'm grumbling, I have forgotten the fact that this creation is subject to frustration, but God is going to liberate it for me and my good and for his glory. And then he says this, we know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. It's a groaning, yes, but it's because something new is coming. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The groaning is not meant to lead to grumbling. The groaning is a reminder that I'm longing for that better day. Yes, I am content with what is, but I know that what is is not what will be. It's beautiful that I'm pursuing, but it's broken, yes, but it's being made new. And so on the one hand, I'm content with just what I have in my life, what God has given me. I'm content with the children he has given me. I'm content with the job he has given me. I'm content with the money that's in my bank account. I'm content with the experiences that he has given me. I'm content with the talents he has given me. I'm not constantly longing for more and grasping for more and striving for more and being frustrated and grumbling because of it. I'm content with what I have and who I am but I know 
that the longing in me for more is because I'm eagerly waiting for God to finish what he started. And for me and all of creation to be liberated from this curse of thorns and thistles and to one day experience work that will be greater than I could have hoped or dreamed or imagined. That's what it means as Christians to grasp contentment and grasp this hopeful perseverance. Because if I have hope, contentment on the one hand makes me at peace, but hope makes me persevere through difficult times, and we need both. The, the difference between two people in their workplace sitting side by side, standing side by side, working side by side, doing the same job, and one is a Christian and one is not, is not that the Christian will not swear and will be more morally upstanding or all of this kind of stuff and just be a better person. The difference is that the Christian will have more peace in their lives and contentment with what is, and yet they have an ability to persevere through whatever comes because they know that what is is not what will be. As we bring that into our hearts, this is what our lives are meant to be, increasingly marked by peace and contentment and accepting of what God has given me. And yet I long for what will be. Amen? Boy, do we need that. How do you know this? Where's my clock? Okay, I'm good. How do you know this is true? Because of the cross and the empty grave. The cross, which is the center of our faith, is what? It's beauty broken. It is the perfection of creation, in a sense. Jesus, the uncreated one, still born as a human, completely perfect, completely at peace with who God had made him to be, content, even without a place to lay his head, as a blue-collar man slugging it out as a carpenter, there were no unions back then, so he didn't make a lot of money doing it. Poor family. And yet persevering through all that obedience meant for him. And that beauty was broken on the cross to cover all of our imperfections, all of the sin of humanity, the stuff that makes you crazy about other people, the stuff that drives you crazy about yourself. All of that brokenness was covered up by beauty broken on the cross. And what we realize, friends, when we have this grace given to us, this is what we are really content about. To say, even if I have nothing else, I have forgiveness, I have love, I have acceptance, I have peace because of what Christ has done. What God has given me in Jesus is better than anything else I could get anywhere else. And if I never get anything else in my life, he has given me the one thing I needed most that I could have never gotten for myself. That's what the cross reminds us. And the empty grave says... The cross is not the end. If you happen to be in the middle of a season, a situation, maybe a specific work situation or just a job situation, whether you're trying to find work or you feel like you're dying in the work that he has given you to do, whether you feel like you're, you're knocking it out of the park but you're still experiencing that frustration or you feel like you're being crushed under the weight of expectations, even your own expectations for how you want it to be, how you thought it would be. The empty grave says what you are going through right now is not the end of the story. And the longing you have for more is not just selfish, sort of naive pursuit, although it can be. But at its root, it is a desire for beauty in your life's work, to feel alive in doing what God has called you to do. And the empty grave says it's coming. It's just not there yet. 
In Christ, we have everything that makes us truly content and peaceful. And the empty grave says, what you have is not yet what will be. And so here's my ask of you this week to do something. I want you to ask someone you work with or live with to say, gee, every time they notice you grumbling about your work. Okay, people are going to love doing this to you. So that's why this is easy to ask because no one's going to say no. They'll love it. You have family that you live with, whether you're married to them or their siblings or whatever. Say, hey, can you just say G to me very gently when I'm grumbling about my work? And they will say, absolutely. I will do that for you. <laughs> some of you need to text someone now and say, ask me about this later. Okay, or maybe someone in your workplace. Listen, when you go to work tomorrow, if you're going to a workplace and you work with people that weren't here and they say, what did you do this weekend? Tell them, I went to church. My pastor talked to us about grumbling, so I need you to do me a favor. Honestly, get them to help you with it. Because as a Christian, this isn't about sort of a moral slap on the wrist every time you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. What does it do? It reminds us, when I'm grumbling, I've forgotten what? I've forgotten everything that he has given me. And I've forgotten that there's a hope coming, there's a better day coming, I can persevere. And I just need someone to remind me, and every time they say, gee, they're, it's like code, right? So like nobody else has to know what those people are saying to you. Why is that guy saying gee to you all the time? <laughs> no one has to know, but you know, and it trips something in your mind, go, oh, I'm not believing what I say I believe. I've forgotten what I must not forget. Would you do that? If you want to text someone right now, I will let you do it. Just do it. I think, you know, when we talk about how, how do we engage our culture? You know, we live in a culture of capitalism, and capitalism is driven by this one thing. More is better. It is the underlying, and you can go, you want to go back to macroeconomic theory, stuff I've learned that I'm trying to forget? It is. Adam Smith, economics, the invisible hand that moves the economy is this, that if everyone pursues their own gain to their greatest extent, the whole economy will benefit and grow. And to a large degree, that's exactly what's happened in the Western world. Our entire economy, everything in your life, basically, and you can't even see because we're, so, we're such products of capitalism. Tell me if this is not true in your own life. More is better. It drives everything. And the antidote, and it also is the source of grumbling. Why? Because I don't have more. How come I can't get more? When am I going to get more? Why do I keep trying to get more and I can't get more? As we realize what we have is best, already what has been given to us, it begins to change who we are. And I believe, I believe the revolution in our homes and in our workplaces comes. Not as we get on our soapbox and talk about how God hates greed and hates all this stuff. It's as we as people begin to internalize contentment and perseverance. We will transform our workplaces. And people begin to say, why do you seem so peaceful and yet so driven to make this place better? And then you can tell them and ask them to say gee every time they catch you grumbling. We're going to uh, go into communion now and have an opportunity to receive the brokenness of Christ for ourselves. I'm going to ask uh, Kurt and Lori to come up first, and they're going to sing a song. And the song is just meant to express that longing that we want for God 
to make more of who we are, to let us move and grow out of this brokenness. And so use this song as you prepare for communion, and then Tony and the elders are going to serve that uh, to us.